Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? It's Friday, March 20th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. If you had the choice, how long would you want to live? I actually don't want to live forever. I would want to live to like, I don't know, 80, 90. Really? That's it. Yeah. Because I can't imagine living to the point where my body is is behind where my mind can keep up. I'm already at that point right now in my mid-30s. I actually like gave a talk the other day and I hurt throughout my back <laughs> during the talk. So this whole notion of how long do I want to live, like... I want to to have quality time instead of quantity of time. You're not alone in that. A lot of people feel the same way that you do, but I just, I don't get it. I want to live forever. forever? <laughs> maybe I'm like really, maybe that's a sign of vanity or arrogance, but I just, I'm deathly afraid of death. It's probably like one of my big fears. I know I probably need therapy, but I admit it freely. And uh, so when Bill Gifford's new book called Spring Chicken, Stay Young Forever or Die Trying came across my desk, I was really excited to read it. There are a few science books that have me laughing out loud within the first 20 pages. Mary Roach comes to mind. But this is one of them. It's frank and open. He mentions men, boobage, fears, and crotchety great uncles. But more importantly, it's very thoroughly researched. I seriously wish I could have interviewed him for two hours. I mean, there are topics in there that I've heard about, you know, kind of peripherally. And he really goes into depth and gets at the bottom of the science in terms of what we know about aging. So when I asked him what we can do to stave off aging, besides changing our genes, of course, here's what he had to say. Well, I, I think I'm, I'm just I'm pretty skeptical by nature. And I heard about one miraculous supplement after another, and then you look a little deeper, and it, it 
turns out to not really uh, not really pan out. Um, it's kind of like anybody who tells you there's a secret is probably trying to sell you the secret. So what do you think? The big secret thing definitely comes through. I think it preys upon everyone's fear of of death and having some sort of cure all seems seems completely outlandish for something as complex as aging. Do you see a cure all as even being possible? No, but I see it advertised all the time, right? I mean, every it seems like every couple of months there's a new supplement, as he mentions, that, you know, and of course, none of these things have proven to be effective over the long term, but people are really keen on finding something to eat or drink or do that can solve this problem. I know a lot of people that are doing such things, like whether it's drinking the red wine, I think that's mostly about the aging, but maybe not all of it. But I know a few people on like restriction diets where they try to eat less food and starve themselves. Uh, I'm terribly skeptical of this. And it seems like there are uh, that a lot of the costs of these of these so-called therapies is enjoyment of life. Like I can't imagine not eating food and that being a worthwhile for like an extra, I don't know, year or two on the end of my life. Well, we definitely talked about that. And his answer was fairly surprising to me. But before we get to that part of the interview, I wanted to talk a little bit about some things that came across my desk this week. So one thing that I'm always interested in is trying to figure out how to better diagnose psychiatric illnesses, because these are notoriously hard, especially illnesses like schizophrenia, which have a lot of common symptoms with other psychotic disorders. And all of a sudden, there's a study from clinical anatomy that that I saw um, that indicated that the ratio of your second to fourth digit, if you're a male, may predict the, whether or not you will have schizophrenia, which is kind of amazing. You could see that, I think, already in children. Okay, so I'm looking at my second and fourth digit, and I'm a male. So what did you find out? <laughs> so it looks like they don't exactly know yet what the secret is. But if there is an asymmetry, that is, if one hand has a larger difference between your second and fourth digit, um, digits than the other hand, that makes you at greater risk or it makes it more likely that you will have a schizophrenia diagnosis in your lifetime. What? So I'll leave it up to the listener's imagination to guess what my fingers look like in terms of their asymmetric relationship. I mean, I've been on the show long enough to for people to predict if I'm uh, schizophrenic at all. But but why? Well, why you would... It, why would the ratio of your digits and an asymmetry between your hands have anything to do with a mental health condition as severe as schizophrenia? Really good question. So for one thing, you know, you might just be responding well to medication. We would have no idea. There are obviously high functioning <laughs> people um, with these disorders. But uh, really, you know, there's been long uh, a suggestion that schizophrenia is associated with some kind of hormonal changes. This is why the first symptoms often come around the time of puberty or just after. And in fact, one of the very first studies that I was involved in was in um, trying to understand how the relationship between when a woman gets her first menstrual period uh, and whether or not she develops schizophrenia later on in life, what that relationship is. And, th and we found a relationship. So we know that there's a hormonal component to the way that schizophrenia gets turned on or off or not on, right, in, in, a, in a particular person. And the relationship between your second and fourth digits is related to the androgen exposure during the prenatal period. So the amount of testosterone that you are exposed to 
in the womb um, is going to decide sort of how symmetrical and sort of the relationship between those digits. Um, but it also might have an effect on the way that the brain of a person with, with schizophrenia develops. So if we think something as fundamental as androgens, and in this, in this case, it's mostly testosterone, have this kind of impact, we would see probably other developmental um, issues beyond digit asymmetry within within these males that we might but i think it's still pretty subtle i mean it's not like you see you know it's it's not, it's not a huge difference and that was the same thing with the women in menstrual periods i mean it wasn't that you know you could that it that it was this big change that sort of happened i mean it was it was pretty subtle um just the earlier you got your period the worse your symptoms would be if you did develop schizophrenia so we know that there's a relationship but you know there's a subtlety there of course um and so you know we still have to do a lot of work to understand that relationship but what intrigued me about this study is this notion that you could actually simply look at someone's anatomy and have a better idea of whether a diagnosis should fall in the range of schizophrenia or, you know, depression with psychotic episodes and so forth. This is an important difference between causal and correlative effects, though. Absolutely. So our listeners that may have some asymmetry going on, don't worry. Yes, that doesn't mean that you will have uh, you will have a schizo schizophrenia later on in life or or even even now. So it's possible that this ratio uh, might help people diagnose individuals with schizophrenia if they're male. Um, and so the diagnosis I mentioned of mental illness is something that's of interest to me. And so another study too came across my desk this week that was much less hopeful and in fact quite alarming. So in the last couple of weeks, we've talked a little bit about how SES, socioeconomic status, disadvantages us in ways in which are not easy to predict. So we talked about it on the Sugar Show, um, and you know we talk about it in this show as well. But here's a study, too, that just really almost made me want to throw up when I read about it. And the findings were that in this study of um, mental health uh, um, therapists, and this was done in Israel, um, they found that therapists were twice as likely to misdiagnose mental illness if their patients were members of a disadvantaged compared to an advantaged group. Now, why would you say this is happening? Is it because the quality of the care isn't there? Or is this like something fundamental to the people going through that uh, experience of being in a lower socioeconomic rung. I mean, I think so. So they did control for the fact that it's not that these people were being differentially diagnosed. So if, it's not that, okay, so if you were coming from a disadvantaged group, um, you were not necessarily more likely to have a mental illness. That, that's not what the study was finding. I mean, that's, that would be a whole other um, area of research. Instead, they were comparing the socioeconomic status of the therapist. And when there's a disconnect, if when the therapist, for example, comes from an advantaged population, that therapist is more likely to accurately diagnose people of the same advantage, uh, and to misdiagnose people that are disadvantaged. And, you know, this, this suggests that there is something about that the way that they interpret the results of these structured diagnostic interviews that brings in this bias. And so it's really kind of nefarious. Do you think there's also some power in the fact that if we had a more diverse workforce in in this case that they'd be more uh, uh they'd be more sympathetic and empathetic with the situation that 
that some of these patients are going to come from and better relate to them? Is that is are we talking about just some understanding of the background? Yeah. So this is what the authors of the study suggest. They suggest that if you have a scenario in which, say, a therapist is white and comes from an advantaged background and they see a white patient who has certain behavioral changes, they might say, oh, well, that person is just under a lot of stress. You know, they're dealing with a lot of things in life, you know, especially if they can relate to them on the in terms of these these things. But if they see someone who's African-American, for example, with the same uh, symptoms, they might then misdiagnose them. And and the words that they use, they might might call them having persistent borderline personality disorder, which is very different from this kind of just, you know, transient um, stress related thing. So, you know, it suggests that you're exactly right, that they don't seem to empathize in the same way. And, you know, you think that these structured interviews, you know, the work that clinicians do in order to see and avoid their own biases would be helpful. But obviously, we still have a lot of work to do. I actually hope this is a a positive statement that this kind of finding leads to more diversity in the workforce so that we can better treat the people that we're trying to reach the most that are under the most mental stress, if you will. Yeah, I, I hope so. And but in addition, I also hope that, you know, we can kind of even the playing field so that obviously we need a more diverse set of clinicians so that individuals can seek out people of the same you know, race or ethnicity if they want that. Um, but also we sort of need to figure out what it is about these diagnostic interview interpretations that is leading to these misdiagnoses. Well, I hope this um, results in some changes down the road. Uh, for my story that really came across my desk in the most way this week uh, comes from Carl Zimmer's uh, story in the New York Times Magazine this week. So, Indra, I have a question for you. Does size matter? (laughs) Oh, such a loaded question. Let me rephrase that. Does the size of your genome matter? So... You know, if if I hadn't read the paper and Carl's uh, beautifully written story, I would say absolutely. You would think that the larger the amount of or the more DNA material we have, you know, the more complex the organism. I would think that the DNA of, you know, a bacterium is going to be smaller, fewer base pairs than the DNA of a complex human. So Carl this week wrote about this concept of junk DNA. And just as Indre was saying, there's three million base pairs uh, uh in inside the human genome. And he worked with a researcher on how many is in an onion. And they come up with 15 billion base pairs in an onion. And then you look at other creatures, and it can go up to, you know, tens of billions of pairs. So what is going on here that complexity and length of uh, size of DNA don't seem to correlate in any way. And back 20 years ago, this idea of junk DNA really emerged and took hold is that there's whole bits of our DNA structure that are non-coding is the, is the scientific term, that they just basically don't seem to do anything. And, and the thinking was that we just don't know what they do. I mean, they don't actually code for specific proteins, so we can't call them, you know, genes necessarily. But we always, I think, most of us have thought that eventually we'll figure out what this junk DNA is for. I mean, you know, Mother Nature is selective and she doesn't waste things, it seems. So, you know, it, it surprises me that there's such a big disconnect between the number of brace pairs in DNA and the complexity of an organism. So Carl hi- highlights some recent uh, work in in discoveries around some of those non-coding areas and how a few scientists have actually found areas of non-coding area, uh, uh, parts of DNA that make a huge impact on 
on life. Uh, so there's a famous paper published in 2007 in The Cell that showed this one non-coding area actually had huge impact on physical deformities in mice when it wasn't when they actually took it out of the uh, of the DNA size. This was a fundamental change because they've actually found purpose in this in this area. And since then, there's been more discoveries in the sector, but not anything uh, that basically brings us to some conclusion on how much of DNA is not being utilized. Something like in humans, it's like 98% is non-coding. Yeah, no, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I can't back you up on the exact numbers. I don't know what they are, but um, you're exactly right that it's a big chunk. And I, and I also, you know, wonder if we're going to find that, that the number of base pairs in the DNA of an organism is going to correlate with something else. So maybe it's not complexity, but I have a hard time believing that it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a signal of something, whether it's where that organism is on the tree of life or, you know, the, the t- changes that it took in order to evolve, you know, what have you. Carl insinuated something that in the article that was derived by something that Stephen Jay Gould said, is that we looked at evolution in a macro sense oftentimes, but what if evolution and natural selection is happening on that DNA level too? So, over time, these DNA are accumulating all of these base pairs through different evolutionary pathways, but sometimes they don't really do anything. They're not really incentivized to eliminate the extra junk that accumulates if it doesn't do anything. They're just sort of incentivized to keep going until they accumulate something that does something beneficial. So we might be in this weird situation where we just have junk because evolution is an imperfect process. Uh, But what I think the real takeaway is, is that notion of junk DNA, that term that's been around forever, is probably not a great way of describing these bits. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. And I wonder if like something like an onion, which maybe we even have had a hand ourselves into selecting for its DNA, right? Through artificial selection, we've, you know, using our agricultural tools, we've essentially created the onion as it is today. And we've probably done that by inserting genes, even if it's not genetically modified, you know, by breeding it with like and, and so forth. And and so I wonder if there's gonna be this correlation between sort of, you know, um, organisms that have changed the most. So, you know, when you look at a picture of, you know, for example, genetically modified, um, or if when, if when you look at a picture, say, of like corn or some other food that, you know, we have selected for as humans during the agricultural revolution and so forth, like whether they're going to show much, much larger um, numbers of, of base pairs in their DNA. Well, I think we've definitively proved that size doesn't matter. So thank you, Carl Zimmer. It's a great piece in New York Times Magazine. We'll link to it in our Tumblr. Well, you know, there is one other study that I did read about the ratio between the second and fourth fingers, and it does predict the size of certain aspects of the male anatomy related to hormonal changes. But we'll leave that for another show. So with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Bill Gifford. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. I know our producer Adam Isaac has used lynda.com even before they were sponsoring us, and he swears by their courses on photography and media production. He said he especially loved the series of courses by photographer David Hobby. 
With a Lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can stream thousands of video courses on demand and learn at your own pace. Your Lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. But right now, Lynda.com is offering our listeners a free 10-day trial by going to Lynda.com slash minds. So whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit Lynda.com slash minds and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash minds. And this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners a special offer of up to 80% off the series Origins of the Human Mind. In this series, available on either video or audio, Professor Stephen P. Hinshaw of University of California, Berkeley, provides a guide to the latest information and viewpoints on what neurobiologists, psychologists, and other scientists know about the human mind. Across 24 30-minute episodes, topics covered include how the human brain works, the development of the mind from infancy through adulthood, topics from abnormal psychology, such as psychosis, schizophrenia, and mood disorders, predictions of the future of human minds. This special offer of 80% off Origins of the Human Mind is only valid until April 15th. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out about this special offer or any of the 500 other series offered by The Great Courses. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Bill Gifford. Nice to be here. So about a year ago, I found myself in a room full of really smart people at Google at this conference. And we were talking about, you know, how can we make ourselves live forever? forever? How can we sort of hack aging? How can we solve this problem? And the first question that popped out was, you know, d- who here in this room of what I considered to be really smart people wants to live forever? And when I raised my hand, I was shockingly in the minority. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was really surprised at this. So, Bill, do you want to live forever? Do I? Yeah. You know, it, it would, hmm, it would be interesting, but you, you'd have to keep it interesting, you know? And, you know, I, if, if, if I'm in the same shape that I'm in now, sure. So I guess that's really... It'll be an adventure. It'll be a great, <laughs> great adventure. And that's what most people said, is that they don't feel that they can maintain the same uh, either quality of life, whether it's financial or, you know, interest, or most importantly, that they wouldn't be physically able to maintain the same level of fitness that they have for that long a period of time. And so most people in that particular room said they wanted to live to maybe somewhere between 90 and 100. And in your book, there's a section in which you kind of indicate that there was a Pew Research study that, in, that, that suggested that this seems to be true for the general population, that most people would like to live to, you know, somewhere between 90 and 100. Um, is that, am, I, am I accurately quoting that study? That's about right. 120 was about the upper limit of what people thought was desirable. But it's interesting, you know, religions have always promised people some sort of immortality, right? Christianity, you're going to, you know, live in heaven forever. Uh, but then Jonathan Swift ruined it with the uh, his uh, Strollbrugs, right? And they were people who, they lived forever, but they kept on aging and getting older. And they very much like much older people in our society, they, they kind of lost all their rights at a certain point. Uh, they got crappy housing and it just was just terrible to be a Strollbrug. So that image of extreme longevity has kind of spoiled the idea of immortality for for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that a lot of people actually 
continue to believe in a religion because of the promise of eternal life, that that's really oh, a major yeah. carrot. And, and yet yeah. when you ask them straight out, you know, if, if science could extend your lifespan to, you know, a thousand years, people are kind of skeptical of that. So I wanted to start out by... As getting... am I, by the way. Oh, oh, good. Okay. Well, so what is it about aging that we really hate? Well, I think the main thing is that it just kind of sucks. Uh, you know, it's this process that we're, where, you know, you're your awesome self when you're, say, 20 to 30. And you can do everything and you're smart and you're, you know, you're, you can jump and run and um, fall in love and your brain is elastic and your body is elastic. And then in a few decades, that kind of all erodes. And we see it, you know, we see it happening to our parents and our grandparents, and it, it, it ain't pretty. Yeah, you start out with your book with a really wonderful quote that we'll put on our Tumblr page, if you don't mind, about <laughs> how, yeah, the most unfair thing about life is the way that it ends. I mean, life really should be backwards, <laughs> you know, where you get death out of the way, and then, you know, you put in your work, but then, you know, you sort of enjoy all the fruits of youth later on when you actually have the, you know, capacity to, and the wisdom to enjoy them. Right. And instead, we retire. And then it's like, then what? Right, right. So so let's talk a little bit about what's happening in our bodies that causes us to degrade in this way. And I want to start out by really just, you know, taking the microscope and going down into the cellular level. So if I have a cell, and I put it in a petri dish, and I feed it, and I do everything I can to make sure that it has everything it needs. Ultimately, it's still gonna die right or can a cell in a petri dish really be immortal well so they used to think that cells could live forever and that was because of this um basically this old french nazi uh named alexis carell who is one of the leading scientists at rockefeller university and he kept these chicken heart cells alive in his lab he claimed for about 40 years and so the newspapers would would like write articles every year on their birthday. And he had a special theater where he and his assistants would wear these sort of black cloaks and have these like steaming flasks. But it was all sort of a big, um, big put on. Because when uh, people tried to grow cells in different, you know, in their own labs, they never seemed to last forever. And a guy named Leonard Hayflick finally said in about 1960, he said, hey, wait a minute. Actually, our cells aren't living forever. They're not dividing forever, but they seem to have a finite number of divisions, uh, about 50. And he published this little paper that got rejected everywhere, but he finally published it. And now it's that's known as the Hayflick limit. So a cell has a lifespan, essentially. And they found that when you take cells from older people, they have less divisions left to them than when you take a cell from like a fetus. And this probably differs depending on the type of cell. I mean, I imagine maybe a skin cell, which, you know, regenerates more often has a different Hayflick limit than, say, a neuron, which presumably should last for most of your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's, there are non-dividing cells, obviously. And weirdly, those non-dividing cells are in your neurons and in your heart. So the two most important organs of your body. So the rest of our cells are dividing, and they have this Hayflick limit. And so do we know yet what it is that causes the Hayflick limit? Is there is there a little counter in the cell? Um, are we talking about telomeres here in the DNA? What What is it that underlies this limit? Right. Well, Hayflick suspected, he's still alive. He's a brilliant guy, grouchy, yet funny. He's awesome. Um, 
but he suspected that there was some sort of counter that he called a replicometer, but he couldn't find it. And then finally, um, I think it was Elizabeth Blackburn and I believe Susan Grider and Jack Shostak kind of found telomeres, which are these little things on the ends of our chromosomes. And every time the cell divides, they get kind of chipped away, right? Telomeres are pretty well known now, but you know, they're, they're not sure whether those really are the clock that, that sort of, that sort of measures cellular aging. Now there's thinking that maybe telomeres aren't, aren't the answer, but there's something else. There's some sort of, like it could be, um, you know, this is getting a little complicated, but like DNA methylation, that could be the the kind of the the timer, or it could be something else. That that you know, th there has to be a reason why, because because you know we age at such different rates, right? Like, so I'm looking at my my dog right here, uh, sleeping next to me, and she's 14 years old, right? So she's ancient for a dog, and yet my 10 year old niece is very young. So there's obviously a different clock at work. And it's probably not just telomeres. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it seems that there's a lot of research now being published about telomeres and their length and how different behaviors, different diets, different variables can affect the length. So, you know, people who um, I'm, I'm just kind of throwing this out there as a possibility. I, I don't have a particular study in mind, but, you know, people who live a more stressful life might have shorter telomeres than people who live a less, right. uh, you know, stressful life. So, and so forth. No, they've, they've found that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, um, I just, I, yeah, I, I'm not quoting one particular study, but in general, that seems to be the case that there are these kind of things that we associate with a healthy lifestyle seem to also correlate with, with longer telomeres, uh, in people of the same age that who have a less healthy lifestyle. Um, and, and it's the science though is starting to border on to me as a little bit, it's, it seems like telomere length is affected by everything. And I'm starting to get, a, to get a little skeptical about, yep. you know, yeah, really what it means. And so what, what is your take home, you know, having reviewed a lot of that literature? Right. So there, this, there's one study in particular uh, where they looked at um, female caregivers of like autistic or disabled children, you know, the most stressed out people you could imagine. And they uniformly had way shorter telomeres, telomeres than um, matched women the same age. So it was like they were equivalently older, quote unquote, if you use telomere length as, as a measure. But I think the thinking now is that telomere length, I mean, it, that it does change in response to these kinds of stressors or to disease, but that it's really more of a symptom of something else that's going on rather than an actual driver of the aging process itself. But sort of the, to skip ahead, sort of the, the end the end of the road, so after the Hayflick limit or after your telomeres crap out or whatever, you end up with in this state called cellular senescence, which is really interesting. And a lot of people think that actually as we grow older, we accumulate more of these senescent cells, cells that have essentially retired from dividing and that they in fact kind of become little toxic nodes emitting sort of inflammatory cytokines and all kinds of bad things that sort of affect their neighbors. And then as those multiply, that's kind of what drives um, a lot of the tissue level effects of aging that we see. 
So this is also somewhat similar, I would say, to one of the reasons that we think that cancer is a disease of old age, right? Over time, you know, the, the possibility of a mutation going awry after so many divisions gets higher and higher and higher with every every sort of division and so forth. Um, and, you know, you have this interesting analogy in your book about how, you know, we're pretty good at keeping our homes clean and taking out the garbage. But if we didn't do that for a an amount of time, a month or two months or what have you, then our household would stop working. So, you know, is that an accurate representation now of what aging science thinks might be happening when these senescent cells accumulate in in our bodies? So that goes to a different process called autophagy. But, you know, one thing I, I forgot to just sort of backing up, one thing I forgot to mention is that there are immortal cells in culture, like the HALA cells, you know, cancer cells, they're immortal. So just to unpack that for our listeners, Hila, you're talking about the cells of Henrietta Lacks uh, that right. have been used. That, that great book by Rebecca Skloot. Exactly. Uh, the, the Immortal, immortal life, life of Henrietta Lacks. But yeah, those cells are just crazy immortal. Like, they can't be stopped. So these are can- cancerous cells, right? From the, I believe it's the uterus of, was it, or ovarian cancer? Right. That, it was an that o- ovarian Henrietta Lacks tumors. From? Ovarian tumor, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so those cells don't seem to die <laughs> the way that right uh, right the heart and so might. you know cellular senescence is sort of an a preferred alternative to cells going haywire and becoming immortal and thus becoming cancer so you know if you had to pick one or the other uh, cellular senescence would be definitely the way to go well, that's a bit of a and yet that choice. causes aging so it's like you're going to get yeah. cancer or you're going to get old yeah so there are a lot know- of trade-offs <laughs> In the biology of aging, that's one thing I found. And and it seems to be what also people who are passionate about aging, some of the characters that you describe in your book, uh, really do fall on the ends of, of the spectrum here. You have some people who say, look, no matter how much we're going to hack the body, you know, we're only going to be able to extend the lifespan by a few years. We're not going to be making sort of these major... Uh, qualitative leaps in lifespan. And then you have someone named DeGray, <laughs> who's, who you describe in your book, Aubrey DeGray, uh, who suggests that, you know, we're getting close to being able to live for a thousand years. Yeah. And, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between uh, for now. I mean, he's a fascinating guy, basically self-taught. Uh, you know, I think in some weird way, he's kind of a genius. Um. And he's essentially a theoretician about the biology of aging. And so, you know, he's never really done a lot of lab work, but he is incredibly well-read, knows everything about the cell biology of aging. And so he's found theoretically ways in which we could, you know, re-engineer our cell biology so that we could theoretically eliminate these drivers of aging and potentially live for a very long time. But just to give you an idea, one of them would be, one of them is essentially involves stopping, eliminating cancer. So that would, that would get rid of the problem. Yeah. The Sophie's yeah. choice problem, yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah. So, and, and, and does he have any kind of practical ideas of how this might be possible? Yeah. He has some very complex ideas about, um, for example, how you might protect mitochondrial DNA by stashing it away in the nucleus of the cell. Um, well, so let's 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 hit on that one. So, why would mitochondrial DNA be more important to 
um, you know, as a driver of aging or, or for this than, say, you know, the DNA in the nucleus of a cell? Well, so just biology lesson, mitochondria descended from these little essentially parasites that colonized very early bacteria so that that it's basically enabled them to burn oxygen instead of whatever else was in the atmosphere. Uh, so that's how we kind of adapted to life adapted to the, an oxygenated atmosphere. It was like ultimate climate change. And so they still have, our mitochondria still have their own DNA as a kind of leftover from, from this uh, colonization. And it's kind of fragile DNA. So it's more fragile and less well protected than our own native DNA. So as we get older, our mitochondria um, function less well. And some people think that, that is an, that's another sort of major driver of aging, like mitochondrial dysfunction. As we get older, our mitochondria don't work as well. We're not as able to produce enough as much energy and we essentially slow down. And literally, we slow down. I mean, these big studies, um, longitudinal studies of, of aging find that, um, you know, as people get older, they, they walk more slowly. There's a test called the six-minute walk. They see how far you can go. And that is like a direct uh, indicator of your mortality risk. The slower you're walking, the higher your mortality risk because you're essentially running out of energy. So if you could stop the mitochondria from... Um, decaying or becoming dysfunctional, you could tap into all this energy. You'd have you'd have so much more energy to continue living. And there's also some some research too suggesting that some of the diseases of old age that might um, affect women more than men, for example, um, that have a genetic basis like Alzheimer's disease, might be related to some of these changes in the mitochondria. So, for example, I recently heard about um, a study that was published that that showed that if you have the ApoE4 um, allele that can, uh, you know, lead to Alzheimer's disease, if you're a man, you need both alleles in order to double your risk of, of the disease. Uh, but if you're a woman, you only need one. And one of the ideas was was whether it was this sort of mitochondrial interaction. Um, that kind of cause it, but I, you know, it's, I think we're still far at, from understanding it. Um, but it is interesting that you know we sort of seem to have there seems to be a lot of forces in our bodies that uh, are sort of leading to old age, and you know I, I wondered if, but, but at the same time, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that you know we seem to have some control over. Uh, how well we live, at least at the end of life. So, you know, in the beginning of your book, you describe the difference between two of your family members, your un Uncle Emerson and your your grandfather, who were brothers, right? Great Uncle Emerson, sorry, right? Is that right? Yep. <laughs> um, and I mean, you should tell the story better than I, but I, I, I was really touched by this idea that, you know, one of them um, was much less active, you know, and and ended up having Alzheimer's disease and the other, you know, lived a lot longer and was more active and that the, but you know, that the genetic, the genetics behind, you know, in, in their bodies were, were pretty similar. Yeah. And I'll, I'll never forget that. That's kind of when I first became aware of what aging is and of the fact that people age differently. Uh, you know, my grandfather and his brother were about a year and a half apart. Brother was slightly older, but I just remember as a little kid, I was sitting there at, at the beach um, and my grandfather is out there body surfing in waves that were, you know, too big for me to go out in. And my uncle is sitting there in the rocking chair and he's just wasn't in very good shape. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of it had to do with, uh, lifestyle 
lifestyle factors. I think actually now looking at it, I think a lot of it had to do with um, personality and attitude. Um, you know, my uncle was uh, a very sort of strictly religious, um, not a great sense of humor, um, not a very, you know, not a very upbeat kind of guy. At least that's how he seemed to me when I was 10. My grandfather was a big backslapper. He was you know, he gardened all the time. He was up on the latest health news. You know, he was eating fiber before that was cool, you know. But the other major difference that you describe is that your uncle was a uh, believer in Christian science and uh, eschewed medical interventions for a lot of, you know, ailments that you, that maybe over time led to the deterioration of his body that was more, that, that was, was faster um, so that sort of brings me to my next question, which is, you know, there are things that we seem to be able to do and some people seem to, to and it's just not, it doesn't seem to be simply genetic that some people seem to, you know, age uh, less quickly than others. And of course, as you mentioned, there's a huge industry that, that has been built around our desire to find the fountain of youth, you know, the things that we can do. If I can just take a pill or put some face cream on and that will get rid of some of the signs of aging, you know, people spend a lot of money on this. Um, and we talk about it and, you know, there, there are fads that go in and out of fashion. Uh, but there are also some things that seems to stick around and come back again and again and again. So, for example, one thing you hear about is resveratrol, which is, you know, this, this idea that there is a component in red wine and other foods that, you know, seems to delay the effects of aging. So, you know, do you think that there are any um, of these these substances or, or hacks, uh, I, I should say, that have shown promise for a period of time? Or do you think that we're still, you know, all of these are just, just kind of useless? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm just, I'm pretty skeptical by nature. And I heard about one miraculous supplement after another. And then you look a little deeper and it, it turns out to not really, uh, not really pan out. Um, it's kind of like anybody who tells you there's a secret is probably trying to sell you the secret. And resveratrol is a good case, case in point. You know, it's a really interesting substance. Um, they first discovered it uh, in cancer studies. They found that it sort of whacked out cancer cells in the dish. And then it turned out to activate these um, uh, sirtuin genes that are, um, you know, activated also by caloric restriction, which is thought to extend life and extend health span. But it turns out that Resveratrol's got some issues as far as a supplement. Uh, it's got bioavailability issues. It's not really very available. You you eat it and your metabolism chews it up really quickly. So that may be why there aren't a lot of great uh, great human studies. So that that's that's one example. Um, curcumin has the same problem. So, I, but I want to back up a little bit to caloric restriction, which was going to be the next topic that I was going to touch upon. Um, so, you know, there have been these kind of really amazing studies in in mice in particular, or or rats, that you know, if you really significantly cut down the amount of food they eat, uh, they tend to live longer. Um, now, of course, it makes me laugh because the, the, the other side of that is, you know, would you want to live longer if you're constantly starving? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, so... That extra so, six months. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the data currently um, on caloric restriction? And is there any evidence that this is effective for humans? And if it is, what should the regimen be? Is it, you know, you one day on, one day off? Or do you just limit your consumption every day? You know, is there... Do we know the formula yet? 
You know, there's, I, I wrote about, um, in my first draft, I wrote about 45,000 words on, on a caloric restriction. So I really went crazy on it because it's so interesting. But basically, they found by under, you know, under a guy in the 30s found that by underfeeding his rats, a guy at Cornell named Clive McKay, they lived substantially longer. And uh, he thought it was because their uh, development was, in his word, retarded. So they delayed their development. But then they found that underfeeding animals seem to actually slow the aging process. So that's pretty major, right? And that's been sort of the main area of inquiry um, in aging research ever since. You know, how does this happen? And is there some other way to uh, trigger it? But, you know, as you kind of go up the uh, the tree of life, um, the effects seem to get smaller and smaller. So like in nematode worms, you can extend life up to ten tenfold which is crazy. In mice, it gets to be about 30%. And then uh, then they did this study in monkeys. They did two studies in monkeys, which were really interesting. And one came out first, and that was at Wisconsin. And they found that monkeys that were fed 25% less lived 25 to 30% longer. And they put published their pictures on the front page, and it was a huge deal. And it became, you know, it became almost a fad. This uh, very restricted diet where you'd eat you know, 1800 calories or 1500 calories. But then they did another study on monkeys and there seemed to be no lifespan effect at all between the uh, restricted monkeys and the normal monkeys. And that sort of blew everybody's mind because they had, it had become almost a dogma that caloric restriction extends life. And what they found was that the, the second study, which was done by the National Institute on Aging, they had fed the monkeys a slightly different and healthier, better diet. So they were eating like more natural foods, more natural ingredients versus the Wisconsin monkeys had like a, a processed refined diet that was 30% sugar. So basically what the comparison was, was between monkeys that ate a healthy diet and ate a little bit less versus monkeys that were essentially stuffing their faces with sugar and were, were basically diabetic. And you could argue that that might be the state of the average American, right? Because we eat this... I was actually listening to your sugar podcast. We eat a tremendous amount of sugar every day, and that is just bad for us. You know, that accelerates your aging, especially in being diabetic. That's like a fast track to uh, to see it. Yeah, and and as a as a, as an extension of what you've talked about, you know, just like sugar, which seems to be uh, the problem, is even worse for people who are low income. The same is true of lifespan. So lifespans are shorter. The you know you you even gave me this or you you wrote this this uh, amazing finding that there's a study that showed that what subway station you get off at in in London, you know the the, the stop the tube stop that you live at actually affects your life expectancy, which is amazing. Right, and there are there are counties in West Virginia where and other rural parts of the U.S. where uh, female life expectancy, especially female life expectancy is plunging and it's at like third world levels right now. And that's income, but it's also more a more important variable is education. And it's actually the education level of, of your mother that's probably the biggest determinant of um, sort of your long-term health. And there's not much we can do about that except send mom back to school. <laughs> 
Huh. Well, luckily I have a PhD, so hopefully yeah, my so son your, will be your kids okay. Are golden, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it made me wonder then if 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 we can really explain this caloric restriction effect simply on the basis of how nutritious the, the diet is, or you know whether it's a, a sugar thing or a high fat thing or a processed food thing. I mean, do you really feel now that that is? the answer, the explanation, or do you think that there is something else going on um, when our bodies are in this starvation mode or light, lightly starving mode? You know, it's interesting when, when you're, when you're not eating, um, your cells actually do kind of go into a, a different state. It's like one researcher explained it to me. It's not like one cell is red or blue. It's like they have a different engine practically. Uh, and that's because there's a, there's a various pathways that get shut down by, by lack of food. And one of them is uh, something called TOR, uh, mTOR, you know, it's called target of rapamycin, which is a whole long story, uh, that I won't get into, but it's basically a fundamental kind of growth and metabolism pathway. And that all these other kind of pathways radiate out from it. And it kind of governs, um, Basically, whether you're growing and producing proteins and uh, chewing up lots of food and or whether you're in this sort of um, more stress resistant uh, kind of conservation mode and kind of waiting for the next, um, you know, reindeer kill or the next harvest. So this pathway is like goes all the way up and down uh, the tree of life, all the way down to like yeast cells. And it's it's because, you know, food supply is uncertain and, and it's so that we can get to the next meal if the next meal is a month away. Um, but they think that turning down this pathway called TOR um, can extend extend lifespan and it's been shown to do so. And have we gotten to the point where we can even say, look, some of these biological cellular changes that are happening with aging are slowed down uh, when, you're, when your cells are you know, in this mode or have we not made that link yet? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's been, that's been well proven. Um, and you know, one way that this pathway can be turned down is by periods of fasting. So some researchers think there's huge debate in the diet, dietary restriction field over chronic caloric restriction versus, um, you know, occasional fasting, uh, whether that's like, skipping breakfast. I mean, there was just a study. Um, there've been studies showing that feeding animals in certain restricted windows of time and not feeding them all day long, uh, is actually better for their health and makes them live longer, um, than when they have access to food all the time. Uh, and you know, you could assume that the same would probably be true, uh, for human beings. Um, and then there's other, other people who advocate sort of, you know, eating every other day, which sounds awful, or doing a one or two day uh, fast every few months. I mean, the, the, they don't know the right way to do it. Yeah, I mean, because by the same token, we have people who say, you know, don't eat big meals, eat, you know, graze throughout the day. Yeah, no, that that's kind of been thrown out the window by the uh, caloric restriction data. It sounds like the fasting it. data, yeah. So there's a whole other 
uh, set of work, too, that looks at whether there's something in our blood that might mitigate the effects of aging on our cells. So you, know, you describe a series of studies that are kind of um, gruesome, you know, that were done about 100 years ago. And, uh, yeah, you know, this I've, stuff is really cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell us about it. And then tell us where what what the most amazing finding is, too. Well, so I, I love creepy 19th century science. And back in the 19th century, this guy named Paul Barrett, uh, decided to sew two rats together like Siamese twins to see what would happen. And he found out that their circulatory systems joined up. And then about 100 years later, they uh, it was revived. And somebody – actually, was one of the people who suggested it was Alex Comfort who wrote The uh, Joy of Sex, which is a terrific book. Um, <laughs> but he thought, what if you sewed a younger animal to an older animal? And so they did this huge experiment where they sewed all these pairs, hundreds of pairs of young and old rats together. And the old rats lived way longer than they should have. And it was because of something in the younger blood. And so that was revived again about 10 years ago at Stanford by uh, by Thomas Rando and a team, Irv Weissman, um, big stem cell pioneer. And so since then, they've they've found that young blood – uh, re- rejuvenates muscle, uh, reju- rejuvenates aged hearts and aged neurons. So the race is on to find the factors that are responsible for these effects, and you know, obviously, see if you can turn them into some sort of drug and make a million dollars. But it, it's a very powerful and very very promising and, and fascinating area of research. Actually, it's some of the most fascinating stuff and promising stuff that I, that I found looking for those factors. And and yet we keep having to come back to it, right? Because, you know, we've sort of known about this effect and then it seems to fizzle out for some reason when we don't actually find the the mechanism. And, and so we, we keep having to come back. And I agree with you that now it seems like, you know, we're starting to get at some of these answers. So one of my favorite studies is, you know, one in which they actually had these older mice, then uh, they put them into the Morris water maze, which is the quintessential way of testing, you know, cognition in, and memory, learning and memory um, in rodents. You know, you put them in this essentially a big bathtub full of water and there's a little platform that is hidden and you know the the animals hate being in the water so they try to find the platform as quickly as possible they're very very motivated so they can get out of the water and you know the older mice or or older rats don't do very well uh on the morris water maze you know you have to but you put them in time and time and time again and they just don't lost they get lost they don't get faster at finding the platform the way the younger animals do it's like Uh, and yet grandma at the shopping mall she gets lost (laughs) yeah exactly exactly but then if you give them the blood of a younger mouse you know boom their cognition and their learning and memory improves and it's so cool and this this is a research that's been done by uh Saul Vieta at UCSF and Tony Weiss-Coré at uh, at Stanford and they injected younger mice with plasma older mice with plasma from younger animals and they found that once after they did that the same mice who got lost in the water maze went they solved it instantly pretty much and they looked at their brains and, and their neurons and, and their neurons were more, and you're the neuroscientists, but my English major's word for it would be their neurons were more frizzly, you know? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. They had more dendritic branching. Know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. They had more, they'd made more connections with each other. And that's super cool. And, you know, there's not a lot of hope on the Alzheimer's uh, horizon right now. And, but this is really interesting stuff. And they're actually, um, that same group is, is, is planning to do a clinical trial of this technique 
um, you know, injections of young plasma in Alzheimer's patients. Uh, you know, and but it, because, you know, we all have blood and we have blood to spare, it, it started to make me wonder whether, you know, a lot of my uh, friends who are in their 30s are freezing their eggs so that they can have babies later. I mean, should we be freezing our blood at age 25 so that we can inject ourselves with our own blood, you know, 30, 40, 50 years later? I don't know, but you're going to have to do it weekly. So uh, you better save a lot of blood. I mean, that's an interesting, interesting question. I mean, that's why you really need to know what the what the chemical factors are and the and the mechanisms are so you can see if it can be, be duplicated yeah if we could isolate it or just get a transfusion from your from your intern and and uh, <laughs> do that but that's probably not ethical <laughs> we're kind of touching on an interesting issue which is you know you know you mentioned you were at a, a google conference where they're all talking about immortality and yet at the same time, you know, we have these people in rural America who are um, kind of going downhill fast and, you know, people are getting diabetes earlier and earlier and that's associated with income. And it's it, it seems like we're, have, we're heading towards a two-track society even when it comes to uh, aging. You know, we have one group of people that gets way old before their time for those dietary and lifestyle type reasons. And then we're going to have another group that's going to have access to these emerging treatments. Um, so it's just one more way in which there's sort of inequality uh, developing. Yeah, another way in which the rich are going to be pulling away from the poor. And, uh, you know, there's the, almost b bordering on science fiction already. Yeah. I mean, I, I think eventually everybody's going to benefit from from whatever technologies are, are, are developed, but there could be a lag. So one of the other statistics that really kind of knocked me back in my seat in your book um, was this, you know, this this fact that we spend far more money in terms of government funding for research on the research into diseases that all have a common risk factor, and that risk factor is aging. You know, we spend way more money um, trying to find cures for Alzheimer's disease and diabetes and all and cancer than we do on the actual basic biology of understanding aging. Right, and I, if you sort of look at the what's spent on the. Um, Actual biology of aging, it's down around forty million versus five billion for cancer. Which, as so, you point out, is like the you know the price of a really good apartment in Manhattan. Yeah, right? yeah, really good. Um, and and you know that's because we have this silo model of research where the National Institute of Health is divided up by disease, so heart disease, um, cancer, um, you know, diabetes, and then. Alzheimer's, that's, that's part of the National Institute of Aging. But all these diseases have their roots, it is thought, in the aging process itself, or something in the aging process makes us vulnerable to them. And they all have this very long prologue where they're, you can see them coming for years or even decades uh, before you're actually diagnosed. So we're trying to treat them at the wrong end. We try to treat them after you get them. When we should be looking at somehow, can you dial back the aging process in some way so that less people become vulnerable to the diseases or you can push back their onset um, for a certain amount of time. So that's, you know, that could be a better bang for our, our research dollar. One example that's already kind of got people excited is a, a drug called metformin, which is a diabetes drug that, that millions of people already take. And they're finding that um, diabetics on metformin actually are seeming to live longer than non-diabetics who are not on metformin. 
So that's sort of the opposite of what you'd expect. You'd expect the diabetics to die sooner because it takes seven to 10 years off your life. So there's a, a thought that metformin may already be doing this and, and slowing down the aging process to a degree and thus making people less vulnerable to a aging related disease. Yeah. So, so the idea is like, you know, if smoking causes cancer, stop smoking before you get cancer. Don't try right. to treat the, you know, cancer related to smoking. So we, yeah, if we, if we can understand exactly. the effects of aging, then we can get rid of that risk factor and, and, and help cure all of these diseases um, with one fell swoop. And, you know, the irony, of course, is that the general public spends a lot of money trying to fight aging, you know, in, in a myriad of ways. And yet, uh, you know, the way that our, our, our governmental attribution to the research research is, is, is quite skewed. Oh, it's, it's minimal. I mean, I was reading, there's a statistic where I, I think we spend, you know, the amount we spend on plastic surgery alone, I mean, is well into the billions versus the 40 million that we spend on the actual science of aging. It's crazy. Wow. Amazing. And the funding line is really low for the National Institute on Aging. So really, to be honest, it's, it's a travesty. Um, only the safest stuff gets funded. And the, you know, it's not getting pushed forward um, with the urgency that our aging society uh, requires. And that's why it's kind of exciting that a company like Google is is kind of getting into the, into the field and getting, getting behind it. And also, you know, drug companies like Novartis, they're starting to look at it as a promising area of, uh, of research. Well, you'd think they'd have an interest. I mean, if they can find oh, a pill yeah. <laughs> to stop aging, boy, would be that huge. be a blockbuster. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Bill Gifford. Thank you so much. That was a great discussion with Bill. I'm left with this whole notion of that we invest where the disease is and not necessarily in the fundamental basis. I think aging is something that we all experience, that every organism on this planet experiences. Uh, so I'm struck with this notion of, like, should we be funding aging not from the perspective of neurodegenerative diseases and uh, and more from just the, the basic what is happening here. That was the big, you know, sit up in your chair moment for me when I read his book. And, you know, I think it's absolutely right that, that we have misplaced our priorities in terms of funding research at the moment. I mean, of course neurodegenerative diseases, diseases of aging are terrible, right? And we will succumb to them if we don't cure them. But on the other hand, we're really not looking enough, I think, at the causes and understanding the biological basis of aging itself. And, you know, as, as he talks about, it's really hard to get funding for that kind of basic work. It's not as sexy as saying, I'm going to try to cure Alzheimer's disease. But what if we like, try to cure aging, and we won't even have to worry about Alzheimer's disease? Well, to unpack this just a little bit and play devil's advocate, I think you can't be a great Alzheimer's researcher right now without studying some fundamental pathways related to aging. So are these just a little too packed together in the way basic research is being conducted around this? I mean, I, I think you're right. But I also think that we have to move earlier into the lifespan and study people in middle age in order to understand even how Alzheimer's disease develops. You know, what is the relationship between aging and the development of these kinds of diseases? And and I do think that those kinds of studies are really woefully underfunded. And so, you know, and, and I and I Think we should, I don't think we should take money away from people who are doing Alzheimer's disease research. Um, I don't know where the money should come from, but I do think that we should really seriously consider the idea that, you know, we, we need this basic science of aging needs to be studied. There's some really big mysteries here 
that we didn't even um, uh, touch upon uh, in a significant way in the interview that that shows how big this field is. And one way an aging researcher put it to me is uh, you look at similar organisms, like let's say a mouse and the naked mole rat. Naked mole rats heavily studied in aging. Their lifespan is about 10x different. A naked mole rat can live decades. A mouse is going to live, you know, three years. Why do we have organisms that are really similar in terms of their their structure, their size, their relationship on the tree of life, have such different age spans? It doesn't, like, compute in terms of your basic um, sort of approach to it. And I think what's more, I mean, I, I agree with you. And that's, I think this, again, this is this, this underscores the need for us to understand these basic mechanisms. But you also have in these studies, the ability to double the lifespan of a mouse, you know, with certain changes. I mean, imagine if your lifespan was doubled, that means you'd live to 140, 150 something, or right? Depending like, on where you're you know, from. 75. Yeah. If I double. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I mean, so that that's, that would be a a, a huge shift um, in in our lives, and so uh, yeah, I think I think that it's it's still really interesting, and I think that we have to kind of go back to the drawing board in a sense and look at what you know. How is it that you can expand the lifespan of even these pretty primitive organisms like worms to such a great extent? I think it's not just about extending lifespan. It's about understanding some of these processes. You you touched on cellular senescence, which is this really weird thing where the cell just decides, I'm done dividing. Like, we're, we're done for, for a while. We're just going to stop. And the impacts of what happens for a lot of human cells when they reach senescent stages is pretty significant on our health. They indicate uh, a lot of inflammation um, uh, situations throughout our body, which leads to all sorts of chronic disease conditions. Inflammation has become the focus of a lot of disease research. But we don't understand really in a pretty significant way that pathway of how a senescent cell um, decides that it's done, even though there's some indications as you touch upon your, in your uh, interview. But then the next step of, well, now I'm senescent. I'm going to just do stuff. Like the, that... The things that the cell decides to do when it's done dividing are pretty significant in terms of the impact on our health. Yeah, but, you know, as you mentioned, the Hayflick limit so interesting. Um, but yeah, I think I think also there's this potential. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm too pie in the sky. Maybe I'm too concerned with living till you know for eternity. But what if you could? essentially hit the self-destruct button, trigger that in these cells, trigger apoptosis, you know, in these senescent cells and just kill off all the senescent cells. Like, you know, would that be a, a, a problem in terms of the way your body functions? Or could you really make some amazing strides in figuring out aging? I don't know. I'm still left with this really big philosophical question that seems embedded in the whole conversation about aging that I think we might need to to tease out away from the actual basic research. And there seems to be embedded, like, how long do we want to live? Forever. <laughs> that seems like such a ridiculous answer to me. But what's more, what's underneath that that question for me is why people are answering 80 or 90 like I did. Uh, and... Uh, what their motivations are with what they picture is is that just what they seem they think is natural limit um and when i i've heard Aubrey de gray talk a number of times and he's very much out there on this topic about living a thousand years 
it, I, I really want to talk to more people and hear more people's perspectives. Why, why is it that they think we shouldn't go much past a hundred? And is this does this explain our fascination with vampires, <laughs> or at least mine? Well, I think those are questions that we need to table for another episode. So that's it for our episode of Inquiring Minds. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, supplements that you think might stave off aging, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming, or DVD and CD. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of their courses, Origins of the Human Mind. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash good plan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.